0: Hear the word of the Lord. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. And so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Mark two eighteen through 22. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. I don't know if you've enjoyed the roller coaster barometer that my sinuses have been on, but I complained about summer here at Abilene. I was looking forward to fall, and I really enjoyed the last 20 minutes of it. But the weather says it's going to be 90 degrees by Wednesday again, so summer, here we come. This is going to be great. Woohoo! I'm, I'm glad you're here today, especially. If you're our guest, um, it means a lot to us that you chose to come here this Sunday. Uh, before we jump into the word, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we call on you to be the God who you say you are. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. Father, the God of Israel. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, the God that lives and reigns even now. And Father, we look forward to the future as we see your kingdom unfolding all around us, as we look forward to the reality that we just now can imagine barely, that we glimpse in the faces of our brothers and sisters. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. It's an interesting time in Capernaum when the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus get together to have a conversation. And you can't really blame the disciples of John for noticing that Jesus' disciples never seemed to fast. Fast. It's not just the Pharisees this time that are lobbing questions Jesus' way. And it's a legitimate question. In the first century, people that were faithful to God regularly fasted. They went without food for a certain amount of time. And so John's disciples asked the question, why don't your disciples fast? It's really a question about Jesus about what kind of rabbi is this guy exactly. Maybe it's because Jesus keeps going to the wrong parties, like we saw last week. He eats with sinners. I mean, we know he's accused of being a a drunk and a glutton, and so maybe just Jesus has too much to eat. It's not about the disciples. It's a challenge of the way that Jesus is leading them. The Old Testament is full of fasting, You fast when you mourn. You fast to repent. You fast during certain holidays, like the Day of Atonement that happened just this past week. You fast to humble yourself before God. John's disciples are fasting. They're fasting for repentance so that they can see the kingdom come. So why aren't Jesus' disciples being taught to fast? Are they less devout? Are they sloppy disciples? It's not often that we have this kind of discussion here in our churches in the 21st century, especially in America, in a place where we rarely deny our wants or our desires. And we live in churches that will live just about anybody in We don't ask very many questions at your membership of how often you pray or how often you read your Bible. I don't know if I've ever been asked how often do I fast as I was looking at a church. We don't ask or question whether you fast or pray. And Jesus' answer is is simple. You don't fast at a wedding, you celebrate. I've never been to a wedding ever where someone says, no, I'm not going to eat the cake. I'm fasting today. That's terrible planning. Nobody goes on a diet on December 23rd. You wanna be the worst at your family gathering? Just look at your grandmother's sweet pecan pie and say, I'm on a diet. No, you don't do that. You wait till the end of the celebration. You wait till after the holidays. And Jesus says, right now, the bridegroom is here but he won't be here forever. The best story I know about this is a couple of friends that got married just right after they graduated from college, and they were going to be married about a week and a half later, and and suddenly the, the bride's grandfather, about two days before the wedding, died unexpectedly. And the bride and the groom, and they talked to one another, and they made a decision, and they went to her mother, and they said, look, we know grandfather died and we want you to know we don't care about the flowers and we don't care about the cake. If, if you want us to, we will postpone this wedding. We can get married later so that our family can mourn. And the mother of the bride blessed her heart, thought about it for all of about 20 minutes and came back and said, absolutely not. The thing that your grandfather would want more than anything else is to see this wedding. He was looking forward to it. And I think the most fabulous thing that happened at that wedding is that the mother of the bride cried, but they weren't tears of mourning for her father. They were tears of joy for her daughter. Jesus says the bridegroom is here, but he won't be here forever. And maybe there Jesus is, is talking about the cross Maybe he's he's pointing towards the end of his life or maybe he's talking about the habits of the church that one day we will need to fast but that kind of sounds awkward here at this service where the most important symbol that we gather around is a table which represents a feast. It's about eating. It's a meal that celebrates the victory when Jesus come agri- comes again. It's, it's the meal that celebrates a lost son or daughter who has come home. It's the memorial feast where we remember our risen king. And it's hard on a Sunday morning to have that sense of mourning and grief we fast. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes to think together about fasting and, and why it matters for us to do as Christians. Because we live in a kingdom that's already come but is also not yet here. Fasting prepares your heart. If we were to say this in Old Testament language, we would say fasting girds up your loins, which if you don't know the source of that phrase, basically uh, people used to wear kind of long skirtish clothes and girding up your loins was tying your skirt into kind of like a diaper so you could run fast. Fasting prepares your heart. It gets you ready. This is the fasting that John the Baptist's disciples were doing because they were getting ready for the kingdom that was coming. In fact, Jesus himself fasts this way. In, In the story of the temptation, the evil one comes after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And you might think to yourself, I can barely go one meal without eating. I can't imagine not eating for 40 days. And at that moment, I would be so hungry and my muscles would be so weak and I would feel so tired. My brain would just be mush. But that's not the case. In Jesus' fasting, he learned that he doesn't need those things, that fasting provides spiritual and mental clarity. When Jesus meets the Satan in the desert to be tempted, he's not at his weakest point. He is at the strongest he will be. Fasting reminds you that God is your real sustenance. One of the things we see in the book of Acts is that the people regularly get together and pray and fast. And when they do that, the Spirit does something incredible. The Spirit opens a door that was locked. The Spirit breaks through a wall that wasn't allowed and it's not magic. It's not like fasting and prayer can force the spirit into action. It's just that when God's people gather in such a way, they creates space and room for the spirit to do something. It reminds us that God is our real sustenance, not food. On the other side, fasting reminds us what it means to be hungry. And in our hunger, we stand in solidarity with those that don't have enough food One of the most wonderful stories I've read about fasting is the story about a town in medieval Europe. And the leaders of the town went to the leaders of the church and said, we don't have enough food. There's been a famine and there's not enough rain. We don't know what to do, but we're not going to be able to feed everyone. And as it was the custom of the Christians in the town, fasted once a week anyway, but the church leaders decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to fast twice a week until God gives us rain. And so the church decided to fast twice a week and they took that time to pray, but there was this fascinating byproduct that happened that the price of food dropped just a little bit and there was just a little bit more to go around. Fasting reminds us what it means to be hungry. And fasting teaches us that the urges of our bodies can be overcome. Overcome. I don't know about you, but my experience with fasting fails most often in this way. I decide I'm going to fast, and so I skip breakfast, and I skip lunch, and I'm doing really well. And then about two, after, two hours after I've skipped lunch, I get hungry, and I reach into the cabinet, and I pull out a granola bar, and I begin eating. And about halfway through that granola bar, I realize what I'm doing. I promptly spit it out, but it's too late. I've already eaten. It's because my stomach dictates my habits. Without thinking, without reflecting, without any conscious thought, I would stop and eat a granola bar. I have pulled into the driveway of a McDonald's, ordered a cheeseburger, eaten half of it before I realized I'm not supposed to eat today. Because my stomach directs what I do. But when we fast, we, we learn that our body's urges can be overcome we aren't prisoners to the impulses of ourselves fasting helps us learn how to resist temptation how to fight addiction whether that's porn or otherwise jesus says they're not going to fast right now but there's going to come a day when they will But then he follows up this simple explanation of why his disciples fast with a little bit of a mystery. He says, you can't sew a new patch into an old shirt, and you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And this is something in the first century that's just kind of universally known. It's kind of like a, a, well, duh, like you can't open a Pringles can and eat just one chip. It's just, it can't be done. You can't post something political on Facebook and not get trolls come in and comment on your feed. It just, it can't be done. This is universally known. You can't put a a new patch on an old uh, garment because when you wash the garment, the new patch will shrink and it'll just tear everything. You can't put new wine into old wineskins because the fermentation process will cause it to swell and it's already been stretched once. It's gonna burst it. You're gonna lose the wine and the skin. This is just something everybody knows. But, but what does he mean exactly? Well, maybe what he's talking about is more than just shirts and wine. Maybe the Jewish system of religious piety and approaching God is what he's talking about. Maybe this is more than just converting from John's ministry to, to Jesus' ministry. I think maybe he's talking about something more here. And the best story, I think, that uh, explains this is about a man named Fosbury. Fosbury grew up in uh, Oregon, and he was a high school track and field player, and he wasn't very good at it. His his specialty was the high jump. And you need to know a little bit of history about the high jump. The high jump, when it first got into the Olympics, it was a standing jump. People just stood where they were and they jumped as high as they could and tried to get over a bar. And then they landed. And where they landed was, it was like the, the, the long jump pit. It was sand or maybe sawdust. That's what they landed in. Well, about 25 years later, they changed the rules so that you could kind of run up to the bar to jump over it. And there were a few techniques that uh, were created to get over the bar. The first was the scissor kick. Now, in first, I demonstrated the scissor kick. I'm not going to do it for you. I pulled a terrible hamstring. I'm getting old. Um, It was, um, okay, a scissor kick, right? And you just jump over. Thank you. This is not easy. I'm in front of 1,000 people here. then also they had this other one that was kind of a straddle where you, you flip both legs over at the same time, and then there was this third one where you kind of just jumped over like this and you hoped you land on your feet. But because of the the stuff that you landed in, you always wanted to land on your feet. And Fosbury was not very good at these jumps. Well, about the same time that he was in high school, this new technology was being uh, developed uh, that people could land in these foam pallets instead of sawdust or stand. And the pallets could be, you know, they kind of wrapped them up. They were like three feet tall. And so, Fosbury did something unique. He changed the way to do the high jump. And some sports historians say that his choice changed track and field maybe more than any other single development. In fact, if you watch the high jump in the Olympics, this is what it looks like now. Fosbury learned that the only way that he was going to get over that bar was if he risked it all and changed everything. He could practice that scissor jump day in and day out, as long as he could, and he would never get much better. Incrementally, he might shave an inch or two inches uh, higher on his, his leap, but he would never be the best. And so in 1968, in the Summer Olympics in Mexico City, the Fosbury Flop was introduced to the world, where he won the Olympic medal and set the Olympic record, At 2.24 meters, which is about 7 feet 4 inches. Because he was willing to radically change the game as anybody else knew it or understand it, he was able to win. And after his jump, no scissor kick or straddle or any other method has ever broken the record. Again, it is the best way to get over the high jump. Just so you know, the current world record holder is Javier Sotomayor out of Cuba, and his record is eight feet and a quarter inches. That's like that. (laughs) Maybe Jesus is talking about something more than just patching shirts and drinking wine. Maybe Jesus is talking about something more. Maybe he's talking about human hearts and how we treat each other because fasting is more than just food. And when the kingdom comes in, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing like a vanguard to the whole new world, it's this irresistible movement of love. It cannot fit in the old garment you are wearing like a patch. It's not what the kingdom does. When Jesus enters your life, it's not just so that you can have a little help in raising your kids so they will listen to you better or to help your spouse to be nicer to you. That's not what Jesus does. When Jesus comes into your life, when the kingdom enters your life, it's not just so that you can get a slightly better job or make a little more money, or so then you can say, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. I'm good now. You're done here. That's not what Jesus does. If you try to use Jesus to patch patching a hole in your life, what you will find that Jesus ends up doing is destroying your life because Jesus isn't interested in old garments. Jesus wants new creation. He doesn't want to fix you. He wants to make a new you. And you can look at the events of the past few years in our culture in our society and you can imagine to yourself, well, if people were just a little nicer to each other or if there was just a little less access to guns, then maybe we'd be a little bit better. But based on Mark chapter two, I don't think that will work. Or, and I'm about to step on some toes here, have you ever heard that old preacher story where the preacher preaches one Sunday and he, he talks about gambling and he was standing in the back as people were exiting and uh, brother so-and-so said, good sermon preacher. And the next Sunday he gets up and he's, he's preaching about drinking and he's standing in the back and brother so-and-so comes up and says, nice sermon preacher. And then he preaches on being faithful to your spouse And he's standing in the back and brother so-and-so walks up and says, now you're just meddling. (laughs) I'm about to start meddling. There is no patch that will solve the problems in our society. Not even impeachment or lack of impeachment. A little solemn more public prayer won't turn our nation's hearts to God, A little stricter laws on moral issues won't do it either. All of our society, all of our culture needs to die and be resurrected into something new. You can't put new wine into old wineskins and you can't sew new cloth into an old shirt. You can't just patch your life with a little Jesus and expect things to get better. You can fix your life with old ideas and you can make some sort of negotiation with the evil one To give you a slightly better experience or something, but that's really only going to add another inch to your high jump. If you want something else, you got to let Jesus change you into something else. And the question that we have to wrestle with today is do we have the courage to do that as a church? We must be about the work of the kingdom in the world if we want to see the kingdom in the world expand. It'll happen, but it'll happen without us. Our job is to carry out what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. And maybe it's time again in America for churches to begin to pick up that task. But reconciliation doesn't exist in a vacuum. It just doesn't happen on its own. Reconciliation demands at least that we acknowledge the truth, that we deal with actual issues instead of just assigning blame, that if we are wrong, we seek forgiveness, and that we live in oneness with the other, which Paul calls considering others better than yourselves. Perhaps the most important task we have in our culture now is to be the place, to be the community where reconciliation is demonstrated in simple lives. You know, the church led social change in the past. The most important change in the 20th century in America, the civil rights movement, That began in churches because churches had the moral courage and the willingness to engage in personal influence in such a way that they were willing to reimagine something different than just incremental, bit by bit, step by step change. Do we believe what Jesus says? And are we willing to abandon ourselves whole cloth? For the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. God and Father, who created us, who sustains us, who loves us, we ask that you be the God that you say you are. Be the God that heals our wounds and mends our hearts. And grant us the courage. The courage to follow you, to abandon our old selves, to see where you are unfolding your kingdom and to join you there. It is through Christ's name and Christ's power that we hope to see your kingdom come. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We have uh, on your bulletin... Some exercises this week, they're gonna be centered around fasting and reading this text again. So I wanna encourage you, check those boxes, write your name and your email on the front, throw them in those little boxes on the way out. And we're gonna send you some resources on, on fasting. If this is something you've never done before, this is a great chance for you to experience what happens when you put yourself in a posture where God can change you. Let's stand and sing to that God today.